We're in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible poised and you're looking to see which bit to flick open. We're continuing our series looking at a culture of discipleship. If you've been with us for a while, you've picked that up. Uh, If you haven't, it doesn't matter. There'll be something here I'm I'm trusting for you. There's an African proverb that says, It takes a village to raise a child. Yeah, I believe God will say to us this morning, it takes a church to raise a disciple. It takes a church to raise a disciple. Why did Jesus come? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Why, why did he come to earth? And I think we get lots of angles on that and aspects of that and the gospel writers are great at highlighting some things. But I want to highlight one thing to you this morning, why Jesus came. Jesus came to build his church. We've been singing about it. We read about it just before our passage for today in Matthew chapter 16. The moment in which the first person declared out loud, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. He then chose that moment to reveal his purpose. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The disciples had understood up to that point that Jesus had come to take away their sin. And they got that, I think. They'd understood that Jesus had come to give them life and give them life to the full. And they'd understood something of that. As we looked at Matthew 3 earlier in this series, we looked at John who said that Jesus had come to baptise people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But now Jesus unveils another element maybe progressively, in his reason for being on earth. It was to build his church. So that's our context, if you like, as we go into Matthew chapter 18. I'm just going to read the first 20 verses, missing a little bit out of the middle, forgive me. Uh, So Heavenly Father, would you just be with us as we open your timeless, eternally useful and good word, and would you minister it? to us, Lord. I pray that everyone this morning would hear you, would receive something from the words of Jesus, and would go and apply it in their lives. Use me as you will, Lord, to that aim also in Jesus' name. So verse 1, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Great question. I'm glad they asked it before I did, because I may have looked silly if I'd asked that question. He called a little child to him. I'm looking around. Have we got a little child? We probably haven't, have we? We've sent them all out. Our youngest ones are possibly too old. Imagine there's a little child in front of me now like Jesus had that day. He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung round their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Going on to verse 10. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Amen. Good stuff. Thank you, Jesus. International security is being threatened by a hidden weapon from an invisible enemy. And it's attacking the very hardware and the networks that support life and health in this universe. And it's called individualitis. That's the cyberbug at work within us. And Satan is specifically targeting the church with it. And I believe that what Jesus reveals here in, in Matthew 18, if you like, is the antivirus software for our minds. So that they're reprogrammed to enable Jesus to build the type and the size of church that he wants and deserves and will one day return for. Okay? And so what I'm going to do today is just draw out two aspects from these verses. Firstly, the what. What is church meant to be like? How are we meant to be towards one another? And I think Jesus draws out six uh, characteristics that I'm going to touch upon this morning. And secondly, how? How are we going to be able to fulfill these characteristics, these traits that Jesus longs for his church? And the first one is this. It is siblings. We're to be siblings to one another. You see, most of, most of this chapter and the next two chapters really is Jesus' response to the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But he starts by getting behind the question because they haven't actually understood what they've asked in the first place. So let me read from verse 3. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's an academic question, disciples. Who's the greatest? Unless you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, alone be the greatest in it, what do you need to do? I think beautifully 
and more effectively than me, Dan has already told us this morning. You need to completely humble yourself. It's what Jesus says here. Unless you change, unless you feel like turn around, unless you repent, change your mind, change your ways, you won't even be in the kingdom of God. But when you do, when you, cha- when you see that Jesus is who he says he is, God himself, that Jesus has made a way possible for you to be saved, that Jesus is king and his ways and his, his decrees and what he says goes and you're going to align to that, it's a humbling thing, isn't it? Then you can believe in Jesus, repent and be his child. Be the child of God. In verse 6, actually, I think Jesus just clarifies what it is to be a child. And why he uses a child as a visual aid, if you like, to this theme of humility. And entering in the kingdom of God. Because he says, these little children dash those who believe in me. So if we repent and believe in Jesus, then we enter the kingdom of God. As we submit ourselves in faith to who Jesus is, what he's achieved, and what he says goes, then, like a child, we have humbled ourselves in a way that we become a child of God. And it's an amazing experience to to realise that you're God's own, that you're a son, you're a daughter of the Most High God. And, And as you grow in as a disciple, that reality becomes more precious and more wonderful and more experienced. You you know the joy and release of knowing that he is your father, you are his child, nothing will revoke that. You are legitimately, you are legally adopted into the family of God. The king of kings is your dad. And it's wonderful and it's precious and it's glorious. And and we can be caught up with that and we're meant to be. But we're also meant to open our eyes and see, oh, who, look, my father, oh, he's also your father and your father. In fact, he's our father, as as the prayer, as we've been singing today, reminds us. And we, we see now, oh, you're my brother. I'm your brother. You're my sister. Not only have we entered into this wonderful father-son, father-daughter relationship with the God of the universe, but we've now been surrounded by a loving family, children of God like us, brothers and sisters together. And you get that reference, that sibling reference throughout this. Jesus refers to it in verse 15, verse 21, and dot, dot, dot throughout the rest of the New Testament. And it's tricky at times to work that out because some of us have had good experiences of being in an earthly family. We know what that's like. Some of us haven't. It's been in contrast. But either way, the church should be a place where we each experience the belonging, the loyalty, the affection of being one of many siblings. That's the church. That's attribute number one. Number two, verse four. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's beginning to answer the question now. Would it take the lowly position? This is a theme that Jesus goes on to develop over the next couple of chapters when talking about being great in the kingdom of God. He says phrases like this. The first will be last, the last will be first. He uses phrases like this. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. 
And as if to give us a prophetic illustration, he talks about himself. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So our first, our primary calling as now God's children, as siblings of one another, is what? Is to be a servant to each other. Maybe you've had a conversation with God a little bit like this that I've had. Father, haven't you set me free from slavery? I mean, Father, isn't that the whole point of the Bible? And my father says, yes, my son, so that you can willingly be my slave and serve my people. And I say to God, well, God, have it, have, is it not true that I've got a unique calling, that you've got something specific for me, a purpose for my life? And he says, yes, my son, I have. Of course I have. I've made you uniquely. But it's always to serve. Oh, oh, but Lord, yes, it's to serve. I was struck by Justin Welby on the video we saw last week saying that he didn't think that God would mind too much that he'd been the Archbishop of Canterbury when he got to see him on Judgment Day. And I think that's the same for us, isn't it? We're always to serve. We never graduate from servanthood. And if we needed humility, and we do, to become a child of God, to repent and believe in Jesus, my, it's only the training ground for discipleship. For the humility we need to serve one another. You see, God's kingdom is topsy-turvy to the world's priorities and order. It's different, completely. In the world, it's all about upward mobility. In God's kingdom community, it's about downward mobility. Rather than being a clamber to the top, the kingdom of God is a rush to the bottom. Are you with me, brothers, sisters? It's a rush to the bottom. That's what it is. Rather than a position of power, leadership in God's kingdom is what? It's a pathway to servanthood. It's not about me and my ministry without us realising the word ministry comes from the word servant. To serve others. You see, as believers now, as children of God, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's, we, we learn that phrase, don't we? We understand something of that. Even though physically we're here on earth, spiritually we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We've got to have that mindset every day. And it helps us, actually. It doesn't inflate us. It reminds us there's only one direction for us to go. And that's downward. There's no higher, there's no higher place, there's no higher position than being a child of God. We can, though, go down as Jesus went down and came to earth and got his hands dirty and came to serve, not to be served. It's immensely practical, it's time-consuming, it's hidden from public, public view. There are so many examples in the church life, too numerous to mention, but it's like the person who's never had children who was children have grown up, who is supervising in our creche. It's like the 60-plus-year-old who we have had who's setting out the heavy equipment on a Sunday morning at 8.30. His servants, there's so many wonderful examples around us. Thirdly, verse 5, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus continues to refer to Christians as little children, and that's how we're to consider one another. You see, however weak, however difficult another Christian appears to be, we're to welcome them with the dignity of being a child of God. And however together, however sophisticated another believer might be, we're to welcome them as equally dependent, actually, as any other child of God. 
We've got a wonderful Connect team, spearheaded and with fresh vision and faith by uh, James and Becca to help kind of say hello to folk as they first arrive and to be a gateway into church life a little bit. But let me tell you, if you're part of this church, I've signed you up to something. You didn't ask to be. <laughs> you're signed up, and it's for life by the way, to be on the welcome team of King's Church. While you're here, while you're part of us, you're on the welcome team. You see, welcoming others in Jesus' name, yes, it does involve that first friendly smile and the hello and the welcome, but it's about the long haul. It's about walking together. It's about variety of hospitality in all its different forms. It's spending time, it's sharing lives, it's involving people in the everyday and the special days of our lives. It's, it's about looking for the rough diamonds among us and investing yourself in them. Because you know there's something of God in them. It's about befriending those who might need extra special grace. It's, it's about giving where you know you possibly will never receive. It's about welcoming one another. Fourthly, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, here's where he defines them, those who believe in me, I, we call them Christians, the word hadn't been invented then, so those who believe in Jesus are these little ones. That's the illustration he's using. If anyone causes one of these to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung round their neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. A rather sobering verse. But I think what it helps us to understand is we're to be guardians of one another. We're to be protectors one to another. We're to provide a context and an environment where we're like an oasis from the world. My interaction with the world might be like yours. It's full of joy, full of fun. But there's also temptation and there's spiritual battle and there's hostilities. And yes, of course, we've got to learn how to overcome them in Jesus. But our times together, when we're together, when we're family, when we're being church, it should be a sanctuary from these things, a place of rest from those normal pressures. It's intriguing in verse 10 there, if you've got it open, that there seems to be a reference to us having guardian angels in heaven. Each of us have got a guardian angel, it would appear, and that's a lovely thought. It doesn't get developed too much in scripture. But I think what does get developed is that we're to be each other's guardian friends on earth. That's how we're to be with one another, as we honour one another, as we bend our preferences to those around us who may be weaker, who may need extra support, who may have vulnerabilities. We need to think first about them rather than ourselves. It may mean that we have to change to accommodate them in what we say, in how we appear, in what we do. And it's because of something. It's because we're more focused on protecting the identity of our fellow brother and sister, than we are about projecting our own image. That, no, 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 that's, that's relegated now. So we're to be guardians. Number five, verse 12. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? Sounds familiar. And it should sound familiar because this is the parable of the lost sheep, but with a difference. Jesus used this parable in Luke chapter 15 to illustrate something of his, his evangelistic work of reaching out. God was the shepherd, the good shepherd. He was the one demonstrating outrageous grace to this lost sheep. And all heaven rejoiced at the salvation of that one person. It's the same story but used in a different way here in Matthew 18. It's a pastoral application that Jesus has. And what he's doing here is charging us to be like God as his under-shepherds 
to one another, demonstrating grace to each other within the church. I'm somewhat encouraged that recent research has discovered that sheep aren't as stupid as we used to think they were. Which is encouraging because the Bible uses sheep as a a very common illustration for us as Christians. Sheep aren't as stupid. I don't know how they do this. But anyway, they've concluded this. Sheep recognise faces. I don't know how they do that. Maybe they recognise other sheep. Oh, Fred, I haven't seen you for weeks. Where have you been? Oh, the other side of the field. Yeah, chewing the card. It's a different thing over there altogether. And they, they, they recognise voices. They even know how to look after themselves, how to self-medicate. So when you see a sheep chewing on the buttercups, it's not random. He's not, it's something in his stomach that says, I need buttercups, I need buttercups. And he's getting buttercups. It's just what he needs and he'll be better afterwards. Or the clover or whatever. Yet sheep are still sheep, and they wander off. And like sheep, Christians aren't stupid. We know, don't we? We know God's voice. We we know and recognise his truth. We know what's good for us. But we know it just instinctively, like sheep. We heard it read out earlier, didn't we? From John 10, was it? You read out, we know the voice of God. We know what he's saying all along. We're not stupid. Yet, like sheep, maybe at times we're silly. We're prone to wandering off. And God knows that the best place for every Christian is within the flock of the local church. He expects us to behave, therefore, like good under-shepherds to one another. To look out for one another. To reach out. To go after one another. When somebody's on the edge of things. When someone's beginning to kind of drift away from God or his people. We're the ones with the responsibility to represent the good shepherd. People do leave and we want to let people leave. It should be easy to leave a church. But not without a trail of grace behind them. Not without the pursuing love of many brothers and sisters. And number six here. Confronters is how I've called it. And that might make you sit up. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. I'm not going to look at the whole section. It's often illustrative of church discipline or comes under that title. But I just want to highlight a few initial observations from it. Jesus expected there to be times when we'd need to confront one another, is my observation. I don't like confrontation. Does anyone like confrontation? If they did, I don't know, maybe we should be wary of them. I don't know if we're meant to like it. The world, of course, has taught us stuff about confrontation. It's taught me anyway. that some, it Often it involves Bad news, bad attitudes and bad outcomes. But it doesn't have to be this way. In the kingdom, in God's community, in his church. It's meant to involve good attitudes. Note here, he says, to win, a desire to win them. Not to win the argument, not to win your point, but to win them. To win them back relationally to God and to us and to his people. It can result in good outcomes. People can hear and listen and be restored. Observation number two really is that confrontation is a delicate operation. Life would teach us that. But that doesn't mean we should duck it. It's a hazardous thing to confront somebody, even done as well as we possibly can. It's a delicate operation and it can can involve mishaps. And I've I've made mishaps 
and I've been on the receiving end of me. We need to be careful. That doesn't mean to say we shouldn't. Jesus expects it of us. It reminds me of what um, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7 about the speck of sawdust in, in your brother's eye, yeah, your sister's eye. Uh, and Jesus, Jesus says, be careful about that. But he does say, take the plank out of your own eye. You've got a shed being built in your own face, mister. Take that out. There's a four before sticking out your nose. <laughs> Get that out of the way. And sometimes we stop there, don't we? Okay, yeah, yeah, I can't be hypocritical. I've got it. But no, Jesus, so that. So that. You can see clearly the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. And remove it. We're not to duck it. Yes, we're going to be careful. Yes, we need to apply these things to ourselves first. And I think actually there's an order to these things. As Jesus unfolds what his kingdom, community, the church is meant to look like, how they're meant to be with each other. And this, if you like, is the Premier League. But I'm going for the Premier League. I think I'm in it too much not to. I've given up too much not to make it. Life is too short for shallow relationships in the kingdom of God. The church is too important for Jesus for us not to make a fist of this and make a go of it. The world is too lost for the kingdom community that God has instigated not to be on display in as much glory as we possibly can. So we need to go for this. Remove the plank and remove the sawdust. But it's got to work along the other five things. So ask yourself, am I I being a good brother or sister to my to my church family? Am I being a welcomer? Am I showing hospitality? Am I a servant in my community? Am I serving my brothers and sisters? Have I sought them out? Have I extended grace to them? Have I brought encouragement to them? Have I supported this person? Have I preferred them over my own preferences? Then we're ready. Then we're ready to bring a confrontation when the Lord prompts it. It's got to be done face to face, is my fourth observation. We're told to go to our brother or sister. You know, despite its name, Facebook is no substitute for fa- this. It's not. It really isn't. And actually, written communication in all its forms, electronic or written, is great for information, for arrangements, for encouragements. But it's not, it's not the forum for this kind of stuff. For the confrontation, for the challenge, however mild, however well-meaning, however careful we might be. Because we need each other in these moments. We need to see each other. You need to see the heart of the person who's bringing it, if you're receiving it. You need to, you need to be responsive to their responses, if you're giving it. You need tone, you need heart to be communicated well. Never in a written form is that done very well, unless you're a wordsmith. You need dialogue. It's not a there. Let me just blare over you. No, it's this dialogue. Let me just come alongside you, Tim. Tim, how are you going? What's going on? You know, I love you, I support you, I'm with you. What, what are you doing here? It's got to be dialogue. It can't just be a monologue. We can't control the outcome, which is why Jesus gave instructions for both positive and negative reactions. If you wanted a seventh one, and maybe this is something to go and chew on, then just read on in chapter 18, verse 21 and beyond. I think Peter begins to get this. He says this. He says, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother or sister? 
I can see Peter's brain a bit like one of those downfall games. The cogs are beginning to whir. What, I've got to be a servant of others? What, I've got to prefer them? What, I've got to extend grace to them like a a shepherd to a lost sheep? What, I've got to potentially confront people? And the little coins are kind of coming down and clonk, clonk, clonk. How many times do I need to forgive my brother or sister? I think that's the context of this. Anyway, I want to just briefly touch on the how. How do we do this? How do we get there? How do we possibly uh, work these kind of things out? These are deep things, these relational uh, attributes. And I think the, the answer is right under our nose in verse 18. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Verse 18. The answer to how, point one, from Jesus, is this. Small groups. You think, Tim, you're making it up. You're shoehorning life groups into your preach. No, I'm not. It's there. It's there. It's there. Point one of how to work this out. Small groups. Join a local church, of course, is point one. And if you're not in a local church, get in one. It can be this one. It could be another one. But be there meaningfully. But point two is to be part of a local church means to get involved in small groups of all types and variety. Jesus modelled it. He had 12. He had four. He sent them out in twos. He's given us promises here about the power of God released as we agree things in prayer in a group of two. Have you been to a prayer meeting where there's been two? God's there. Power can be released. Where the presence of God can be felt tangibly, there I will be with them. What, in a a nice, vibrant life group of 12? No, in three. No group is small enough. Only in small groups can we realistically, I believe, live up to these six characteristics. Let me just tell you, though, not only are they essential, but small groups are difficult. That's a revelation to you, isn't it? No, probably not. Jesus had 12 disciples. This is what he had. He had a political fanatic, a dodgy disciple. Are they saved? Uh, He had someone in a despised occupation, like a traffic warden. Uh, A couple of hotheads, always getting angry about something, a doubter, a cynic, and a mouthy one, one who shoot from the hip, one who just spoke whatever shot into his head. Might sound like your average life group, but be encouraged if it does. Christians are like children. They're needy, they're challenging, they can't be left alone. I include all of us and myself as well. They're dependent and weak and they need special grace as well as a special angel. No wonder small groups can feel like crash. Christians are like, these are analogies Jesus is using. Christians are like sheep, they wander off and sometimes sin. (gasps) They do. No wonder leading a small group can feel like herding cats. It's going to be costly, people. Brothers, sisters, it's going to be challenging. But small groups is where we grow as disciples. To love, to serve, to welcome, to guard, to shepherd, and to confront one another. Only in that context can we work those things out. If you've been around us well enough, you will know that we have different groups. My first encouragement to everybody who's part of King's Church would be get in a life group. Or if you're under 18, go to Impact. Get in to iChurch or to the Roots group. They're not perfect, they're not a panacea, but they're a humble, sincere attempt at allowing Jesus to build the church that he's trying to build. It's not because it's the latest fad, it's not because we're traditionalists, it's because Jesus values small groups. It's a place where we can connect, belong, relate and walk together. 
And this morning I'm just announcing that we're going to press the start button on life groups again. I'm calling it a life group reboot. It's really giving you an opportunity to consider and sign up for the life group you want to be part of the next academic year. So during June, I'm going to send, if you're part of the church here, you an email with the details of the different groups, where they meet, who leads them, etc. And really for you to consider and sign up again. Uh, or, or sign up for the first time. Or if you want, switch to another group. But I imagine most of us will stick to the one we're in. But just use it as an opportunity to refresh that commitment. Of course, you can serve on Sunday morning teams. You can serve in other teams as well that really uh, connect with your passion and uh, God's call on your life. And there's all sorts of fellowship things going on as well. Let me just end by highlighting the blessings that this passage promises to those who contribute to this type of kingdom community here. Church. As siblings, we will live as princes and princesses of the King of Kings. As servants, we will be great in the kingdom of heaven. As welcomers, we will welcome God into our lives. As guardians of one another, we'll avoid eternal loss. As shepherds, we'll share in the Father's joy. As confronters, we'll win people to God. As small group participants, we'll experience prayer breakthrough and the presence of God. You know, it takes a church to raise a disciple. And you're that disciple. And it takes a church to raise a disciple. And you're that church. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.